0: Hey, everybody. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer.
2: And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, he left the Los Angeles Police Department to become chief of the San Francisco PD in 2017, taking over a department under fire for its strained relationship with communities of color and mired at the time in a scandal involving racist text messages sent by police officers.
0: Bill Scott was raised in Birmingham, Alabama, growing up in the 1960s in an era of racial unrest, violence, including the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the struggle for civil rights for black people in the South. He brought all of that background into his current job. Police Chief Bill Scott, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, we always like to start on our show with some some bio, some background. How did you get to where you are today? And I know that you grew up, as we said, in the South. You were an army brat um, and raised in Birmingham. Tell us a little bit about that experience growing up there in the 60s and early 70s.
1: Um, looking back you know, I'm glad that I had the journey that I had, you know, growing up in the South, uh, particularly at that time, it was a, coming out of um, a very segregated situation in Alabama. And as a kid, you really don't know, you know, it was, your world is very small. And I, my earliest memories of, for instance, uh, we moved into a neighborhood, My my dad died in 1970, and my mom widowed four kids and um, she bought a house in basically a white neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I remember uh vividly that when we moved in for sale signs up and down the block you know and a- after you had moved after we moved in
2: did you understand that as a kid
1: i didn 't really understand it and I think my older you know i 'm the youngest kid, and they didn 't really talk about you know why but I didn't understand it, but I did understand that, you know, we didn't have you know, friends to play with, you know. Uh, it was very, you know, that at least that era was isolated, and then the neighborhood started to change to a black neighborhood. Within three, four years, it was almost, you know, 95% black, but I didn't really understand the gravity of what that meant. You know, later in life, I did, right. but yeah.
2: I know you were born right after the infamous 1963 Baptist church bombing, and you know grew up your wife i believe was a teacher or your wife's father was a teacher to three of the the young girls killed in that i mean how even before meeting her did that event and, and sort of the broader civil rights movement impact you or, or or were you just a kid sort of trying to grow up yeah
1: i think i was just a kid <laughs> trying to grow up and it was talked about but of course as a kid you don't i didn't understand the gravity of everything that was happening you know i as I got older and those conversations started to fill in the blanks about the era that we had just come out of, uh, I understood it more. But as a kid, you're just trying to grow up and, you know, fit in. And, uh, you know, as you said, my dad was in the Army, and when we first moved back, you know, moved back to Alabama, uh, I talked differently. You know, you're a kid trying to fit in, you know, you're trying to fit in. But there were, there were a lot of changes that were happening around that time. You know, the city school system was integrating and uh, my older siblings, I think, had a lot more struggles than me because at least my older sister, my oldest, you know, she was a teenager. So um, interesting story. I was back at the uh, Civil Rights Museum in Washington, D.C. and I was looking through one of the, you know, uh, annual there and I flipped through and I see a little section of, about the high school that I went to. And my, my sister was the first one in the family to go to that high school and um, she was in school at that time, and I didn't know it then. I, I, and it was, you know, the white students with signs, you know, very racist signs about how they felt about the school system integrating. As a kid, I didn't know all that was happening. Mm-hmm. You know. You're,
0: as, as Marisa said, your wife's dad was a teacher, uh, knew the little girls who were killed. Uh, I think he was a pallbearer in, in one of the funerals. Um, Does she talk about that? And like, how do you, you know, how do do you incorporate that into who you are today?
1: I think, you know, as you get older and have those conversations, you can put things better into context about how momentous that time was. Um, It was talked about, but as, like I said, as kids, I think our our parents and our grandparents tried to shield us from the realities of the world. So it was talked about... um, but we were also taught the world is the way it is and you got to make your way, you know, and I think that to to this day is the core of who I am. You know, I don't make excuses. My mom didn't make excuses. It's the way, the world is the world and you got to figure out a way to make it through the world. So that's how I see, see things, you know, you just got to keep moving. You got to know that things aren't going to always be fair. Uh, I have a really, really, I would say probably... Uh, My worldview is really based upon what's fair and what's not. And so that's, I can be uh, very persistent when I see things that aren't fair.
2: Would a young Bill Scott be surprised that you went into policing? Like, did you grow up (laughs) with a positive or negative sort of viewpoint in police?
1: Um, I don't think a young Bill Scott would have seen me being where I am today I didn't have a so much a negative view of police but I was grew up to not trust when I um, first got my driver's license and um, well before I got my driver's license my uncle taught me how to drive and he would say hey if you if you are driving late at night and the police try to pull you over, you make sure you keep driving until you are in a, a well-lighted area and uh, there's people around. Well, I mean, the reason, and we talked through, because I asked why, and he's like, well, you want to make sure that you're not caught in an area late at night by yourself. Um,
0: Did you were, have any experiences like that as a young man?
1: Not, not to that degree. Uh, of course, I was pulled over, you know, but not to the degree where uh, that worst-case scenario that he was warning me about happened. So, but that is the the answer to your question. It wasn't, I didn't have any any malice toward, you know, policing or police officers. It was just a distrust in my neighborhood, my culture.
0: Was there a moment where you decided, I'm going to go into law enforcement. I mean, what was that turning point for you?
1: Uh, The turning point for me was, I think the year was 1989, earlier in the year that I actually started in policing. My cousin, uh, who I love dearly, had already joined LAPD, and he, he's a great recruiter, you know. He, our personalities are a lot alike, and all he talked about was how much he enjoyed being a police officer. It's like, it's a great job. I think you do great. And, you know, I had friends that were police officers along the way, but that is when I really started to look at this as a, as a potential uh, thing that I might want to do. So he, uh, he did his thing, his recruitment thing, and... <laughs> He, I was living in Alabama at the time, so he came to visit me. And um, on the way to the airport, he wrote the LAPD recruitment number on a piece of paper. He said, just call this number. So I went back to work, and on my break, I called the number. <laughs> so uh, I talked to a recruiter, and you know, he said, okay, I'm going to send you, you know, information and all that. And he sent the information. This was, I think, in probably April of, April of 1989. I was newly married. I talked to my wife. I didn't I talk to. I didn't even talk to my mom about it at the time because I didn't think she would be good with it. But my wife was. So uh, by June, we flew out. By then, I told my mom as well. So we flew out <laughs> I'm Saturday leaving. Saturday I'm summer. leaving, mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we flew out for the testing process, and yeah, you know, I flew out for the test and all that. So I passed all the tests, the backgrounds, and at that time they were really uh, they were hiring a lot of officers that, at that time. But and so it just happened really quickly. By June, I tested, and by August or September, I received a letter that I I was being offered employment by the LAPD. So it was like a four-month period. I went from not even really thinking about it to being in the police academy.
0: Well, and you were about to step into another chapter of history, which we'll get to in just a moment. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, more of our conversation with San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And we're so happy to be out of the studio this week. We're actually at the headquarters of the San Francisco Police Department. We're talking with SFPD Chief Bill Scott. So before the break, you were telling us uh, that you left Alabama uh, in the late 80s to go to L.A. to work for the LAPD. And Bill Gates was the police chief at the time. Talk about the environment for you as a young black man Moving to L.A., culture shock, I'm sure, (laughs) (laughs) number one, but in some ways, not so much, actually, because there were a lot of racial issues, certainly in the department, but in the city as well. Right,
1: right. Yeah. um, I think you said Bill Gates, Daryl Gates. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. No, not Microsoft. This is the LAPD. (laughs) Yes, correct. Uh, It was culture shock. I mean, it was was not a hard transition for me um, going in because I didn't have, well, of course, I had preconceived of what the job would entail, but- um, I think it. T- I, I think I did, I took it one day at a time. You know, I did have my cousin that was kind of there for me to walk me through what to expect. Um, my first assignment at, you know, when I left the Academy was South Central LA, Watts, you know, that area. It was really, I, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world because I got introduced to policing in a time where, um, you know, relationships were restrained. There was, it was a, period of high violence uh it was the you know during the unfortunately the crack epidemic a lot of people were hurting kind of like today with the opioid crisis if not worse because of the violence that was associated with it at the time so it it was like jumping into uh the, the rapids but i learned quickly i learned a lot unfortunately i had some really good partners who were who were good people I mean that makes a difference in the profession because it goes back to what I was saying about fairness and trying to do what's right. I I was fortunate enough to have some really good training officers who were grounded, who uh, who did things the right way, kept me out of trouble. Um, you know, jerked my collar when I wasn't you know doing uh, things like they thought that I should. So um, it was a good experience, really good experience. But it was a it was a it was a cha- challenging time. You know, there was. What I know now, uh, the buildup leading to 1992 was occurring right before my eyes, and you don't always realize the moment you're in until later. Right. You know, looking back, you can put all the pieces together. You know, how things were, they were volatile, but they weren't at a breaking point. You know, you go to a scene, there were a lot of, there was a lot of violence, a lot of shootings and all that, and. You know we're there to help people, and there was a lot of tension when we got when we when we arrived and uh ambushes you know I had partners that were shot and shot at friends that that i you know still know to this day it was a different era and but I didn't realize what was coming looking back you know probably should have seen all the pieces, but yeah, I was just trying to survive and learn the job and it, it was uh, it was an exciting time for me.
2: I mean, you're alluding to the 1992 riots sparked after the acquittal of of the police officers who beat Rodney King. Um, That was also a time where tensions were very high between the Asian community and the black community. There was the shooting of a a black girl um, by a Korean liquor store owner. I I just wonder, like, what was it like being in the middle of that as a young black man, as somebody who had worked in those neighborhoods? But my understanding is you had been moved to the Valley and then brought back. Like right. what – how is it being in the middle of that just chaotic situation? Uh,
1: wow, you did your homework. <laughs> so, yeah, I my first assignment was you know, South L.A. and then I was reassigned to the Valley. That was actually a change in culture, culture you know. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I was new to Los Angeles. I had never really been in the Valley. And you go from South L.A. then you go to the Valley, which was suburbia, right. you know. It was it – was, and, it, you know, to a T. And so that was... But it was changing. There were parts of the valley, at least where I was assigned, where um, it was rapidly changing and the demographics were changing and the the, the violence was changing and the drugs became more uh, prominent in that area. And um, leading up to 1992, there were a lot of tensions uh, because of those changes. I remember... Uh, you know the valley. If you were African American, and it was you know not a whole lot of African Americans in the valley at that time, um, you you knew who you were. You know even whether you're on duty or off duty, you knew who you were. Um, it was it was that type of environment. You know, you know there were a lot of nice people and all that stuff, but I recognized that you knew who you were. You knew you knew you were black. Let's put it that way
2: you came and agreed to take over this department in 2017 as we mentioned at the top there was a lot going on um, not only that that texting scandal but a pretty damning US justice department review finding that SFPD disproportionately used use of use force of people of color stopped and searched them more often um, how do you approach changing what seems like a culture problem in a, in a in a department and policing more generally like how do you even go about that and how would you grade yourself so far?
1: Um, well, let me go with the grade so far. Uh, it's mixed. I think it's, it's like, like you're in school. You know I was really good at math for most of my school years. I was okay at other you know, subjects, and I think that's how I look at this. I think you I, I always try to break down and have a good handle on the strengths and the weaknesses. And always look towards self-improvement. So the overall grade, I think we've done really good as a department. And it's just, you know, it's not me. I think I definitely play a role in this, in a big role. But I think we've done a really good job with what we set out to do five years ago. Almost five years last month. this celebrated my fifth anniversary year. I think we've done a a good job in a lot of areas. But there are some struggles and ongoing challenges. You mentioned the, the race and the you know, right now we, we, we are trying to crack the code on how do we change the disparities? You know, our disparities are still off. You know, we stop more African-American blacks. Uh, we stop more Hispanics. We search more Hispanics. And those numbers are starting to get more in line with what one would expect, no matter how you benchmark it. But it's a, it's a challenge. And so you have to unpack all the things that go into that. And that's really difficult. You know, there are a lot of folks that Use I think very simple views of how this this problem can be turned around. It's not that easy because of cultural how people think, and we all have biases. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott
0: Schaefer. You're listening to Political Breakdown here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking with Bill Scott. He's been the chief of the San Francisco Police Department for the past five years. Um, there's so many things we could talk about right now. Um, I. I I'll ask you this. I was going to go in a slightly different direction, but you know, so much of this moment we're in right now has been affected by what happened to George Floyd. And, um, I'm wondering, you know, when you saw that tape of Derek Chauvin kneeling on his neck for eight minutes until he was dead, uh, in the aftermath of the trial, how how did that affect you? And how did it affect the rank and file here?
1: Uh, personally, um, it was very hard to watch. And, um, it was and still is to this day very hard to watch. I remember um, I think the first time I saw it, I I was at home uh, watching the news, and then it came on again, and I taped it because I wanted my wife to see it. So, and I showed it to her, and you know, of course, she was disturbed by what she saw too. It was very hard for many of us to watch, particularly those of us that are in this profession, and and we know what's the right thing to do. And it was it was, you know, it was disgusting to be mild about it. You know, this is one of those moments I think in history where there was no questions about what we were watching. And a lot of times in in at least in this profession, you know, we we are very circumspect about jumping out and making assessments or value judgments on those types of incidents because you don't have all the facts. You know, most, most police chiefs that I know, they're going to be circumspect about criticizing a situation without knowing the facts because, we, you know, we all know that there's things underlying that you may not know that could play into that. And so we, we, we're hesitant to do it, you know. Uh, on this one, I and many others were very quick to publicly denounce what we were seeing. And I think that was uh, something that that I noticed, that we're in a moment.
2: Well, we're enmeshed right now in San Francisco in a, a, a case, a, a criminal trial against an officer that has led to a lot of sort of controversy. You decided to pull out of an agreement with the district attorney um, that allows the DA to be the lead investigator on officer-involved use of force. And... I don't want to get into all the weeds on the case or a statewide show, but I do want to ask you, I mean, I think critics of you and supporters of the DA, and and maybe even people who aren't as politically aligned, are watching this and seeing that on the eve of the first time we have this type of criminal trial, as the San Francisco Police Department, I know it was not taking a no-confidence vote against you, but had been very vocal in their concerns about this, and as the DA faces a recall attempt that is really dividing the city... How are we not to see that as political, the The idea to terminate that? And, and what do you say to critics who think that just—that this is sort of flies in the face of what you're saying about George Floyd and, and sort of your approach to policing?
1: Well, you have to—hopefully people will see what the real issues are. You know, well, this is really about fairness. This is about fairness. And, and the way it—the timing of how things— came to light, you know, that was beyond my control. You know, this 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 revelation that came up in this hearing of the trial was really the tipping point for the basis of the decision. And it did and still does, um, it shook the faith of the whole system of accountability. And that's the part that I think people really are, are missing. I'm,
2: By you, by your officers, and did they have faith in the system to begin with?
1: Well, some didn't and some did. I mean, you know, the charging of officers is not a new thing. Officers get charged and we welcome accountability. But like any other person in this world, that accountability has to give uh, credence. It has to be fair. It has to be fair. And things were brought to light that gave every appearance and th- that th- this accountability system we have is not fair. And that is the real issue is what is fair. And I, I, I believe in accountability. I mean, I worked to get this agreement uh, done in the first place. Worked Twice. over two years. Yeah. You're right. So I believe in accountability. You know, the timing of how things stacked up is just the timing. Um, when all this came to a, a head and, the facts of the testimony of that court case was made known through this department. I mean, it ran through this department like wildfire. I was pulled out of a meeting and says, Hey, this happened in this courtroom and it's people are really, really shaken by this. And, um, that is what was the start of, you know, me looking a lot deeper into everything that's happening and a decision had to be made because here's the situation that you're faced with as a leader. You have a workforce who, for the most part, and for everybody I talk to is saying hey, this this is not a fair system. you know this gives the appearance that we're not getting getting a fair shot you know nobody I've never heard anybody say we don't want to be held accountable or we we uh, don't believe we should be held accountable. They just want to be treated fair, so you either have to act or you have you do some people say, well, you could have." Let this thing play out. Policing is a profession where people have to come to work and believe that when they do their jobs, and sometimes their jobs require the use of force, uh, sometimes lethal force, that it's going to be scrutinized as it should be, it's going to be examined as it should be, but at the end of that process, is that process fair? Because if in the back of your head you think that it's not, it's gonna affect the way you perform your job. And that is no small thing, it's it's actually a big thing. And so I'm not advocating that we blow up independent investigations. What I'm saying is we need to have a system where people believe that the investigations are being done fairly, and they believe that the investigations are gonna give everybody who they impact a fair shot at justice.
0: The police commission hearing last night was very contentious. Um, There were questions and criticisms of you in terms of the way you announced the termination, the unilateral termination of the MOU through a press release, as one of them described it. Um, A, what do you say about the process? Could you have done that differently? And second, they also are pushing you to go back to the table and make this MOU work. What are the chances of that?
1: Yeah, well, the way things work, in this department and in this town, uh, the first step of this process was when I got, I told you I was pulled out of a meeting on Friday and it's like, Hey, this is going to be a problem. We got to, we got to address this. Our officers are really not feeling like this, this system is fair. I sent out a department wide email. Basically, basically what it said is, "Yeah, I'm going to look into this. I know it's concerning. And then I'll, I'll get back to you. I mean, that's basically what it said. That was on Friday. Uh, I spent the weekend and some of Monday and Tuesday, you know, reading the transcripts and hearing from our, our members and some of the people about what was going on with as it relates to the MOU. Mm-hmm. And once all that information came together, that's when I made the decision. And as I promised, my first step was to get back to the officers, as I promised, get back to the workforce, as I promised now. You know you may say, well why why would you do that and do it, it, it and then do a press release? Well, the reality is once I announce make an announcement to two thousand to two thousand people oh, yeah it's up. I can't think of any situation where as soon as I press in on a department wide email, if it's any topic of interest, it's in the press yeah
0: we're about out of time, but I just want to come back to the question I asked a moment ago, which is how confident are you that you can come back to the table and work out the differences and go
1: back to the MOU?
2: And can you s- trust the DA?
1: Especially yeah. in, in the middle of a recall. Well, we're, gonna, we're, we're already at the table. I mean, we, we met yesterday and uh, you, you get credit where credit is due. The DA is willing to sit down and talk about these issues, so as am I. That fact of the MOU terms being violated is another thing that keeps getting pushed to the side. Oh, it's, just an, it's just an infraction. It's just, imagine if any of us were in a situation where a process, whether we think it's important or not, is supposed to happen. Certain things are supposed to happen, and then those things don't happen. And a decision is made that might impact not only your livelihood, but your freedom. You want to make sure that things are being done like they're supposed to be done.
2: Well, it could speak to other, you know, bigger things, and I think both you and the DA have pointed out problems. I know we got to go, but I just – what do you say to the people of San Francisco? What happens in a week if this MOU expires and a police shooting does occur or use of force? How how does the public feel confident?
1: Yeah, well, we, the department, will still cooperate with the DA as we always have. And I'm confident that they will cooperate with us. We can't do our jobs without the district attorney's office cooperating with us. And likewise, they can't do their jobs without us cooperating with them. They can't do it effectively anyway. That was the spirit of the MOU. When one or both parties don't cooperate, it's, 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 the agreement is not worth having. So we will cooperate, MOU or not. My goal is to have an MOU, but is to have an MOU that's fair to everybody. Not one side or the other, but fair to everybody, including the police officers. And it's like, you know, it's, when I say including the police officers, it's almost like I have committed a crime why? It has to be fair to the people that it impacts, just like it's fair to the victims of crime, the victims of if of police violence, uh, the community that wants a safe community. Everybody needs to be treated fairly in this process. And that is all I'm advocating for.
0: All right. San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, you us. so much. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio.
2: Our producer is Guy Marzorati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos.
0: And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.